Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for gathering us as your people. I thank you for the promise that when two or three gather in the name of Jesus like this, that he is with us. And we want to worship uh, Jesus, who is present with us in our hearts. Help us to see more of his great worth and your great worth as we consider the incarnation. God, I pray that you would help me to speak true words. Help us all to think true thoughts about you so that we can worship in spirit and in truth. God, would you make us more of the kind of worshipers that you desire for yourself and are seeking and are creating in the earth. God, we offer you this time and these prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this is week two of a three-week series on the Incarnation. Uh, What is the Incarnation? Incarnation means enfleshment or becoming flesh. And by becoming flesh, I mean becoming a human being. So the Scripture uses the word flesh at times to speak of people, as in all flesh is like grass, which means every man is transient, here today, gone tomorrow, like a blade of grass. So the incarnation is when God became human, and more specifically, the incarnation is when the Son of God became a man. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for today and next week, I want to speak about the Incarnation and make use of Hebrews chapter 2. Some of the most explicit statements in the whole Bible about the Incarnation come from this chapter in Hebrews, and I have in mind especially Hebrews 2.14 and 2.17. Hebrews 2.14 reads, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things. This is the incarnation. The Son partook of our same flesh and blood. Likewise, verse 17, the same chapter. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This also powerfully describes the incarnation. The Son was made like us in every respect. Now, since Hebrews 2 takes up the topic of the Incarnation so explicitly, we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at what it has to teach us on the matter. Um, We're going to see how the book of Hebrews develops the who of the Incarnation, the what of the Incarnation, and the why of the Incarnation. Another way to say that would be the subject of the Incarnation, that's the who, the explanation of the Incarnation, that's the what. And the purpose of the incarnation, the why. Today we're going to show you from Hebrews, especially Hebrews 1, the who of the incarnation, and also from Hebrews 2, the what of the incarnation. And we'll just dip our toes into the why of the incarnation. Next week we'll finish up speaking um, more about the purpose of that great event as it's explained in Hebrews chapter 2. So we'll begin now. The who of the incarnation. Now, Since these verses in Hebrews 2 say that he partook of flesh and blood and he was made like us in every respect, then this he, whoever he is, clearly had to have existed before his incarnation. So it would be nonsense for me to talk about when I partook of flesh and blood because there was no I before I shared in flesh and blood. And likewise, it would be utter nonsense uh, to talk about when Paul was made like us humans in every respect, because Paul did not exist before he was made as a human. So the subject of the incarnation existed before he became a man, and these statements also imply that he existed before his incarnate state as something other than a man, right? Uh, Someone who's already a human cannot become a human. So who is this pre-existing non-mortal that became like us? Uh, The author of the book of Hebrews has already introduced him by the time we get these incarnation verses in chapter 2. He's introduced in the very beginning of the letter 
Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, as the Son of God. And then the rest of chapter 1 describes in glorious detail who this Son, who became incarnate, is. And we're going to look at that now. We're not going to talk about everything that chapter 1 says about the Son, because some of what chapter 1 says about the Son describes His mission as the incarnate one. So I especially want to focus on what chapter 1 teaches about the Son that helps us answer the question, who is it that became incarnate in the first place? And this is amazing. This should amaze you. The first way the Son is described in chapter 1 shows how amazing the incarnation really is because the one who partook of our same flesh and blood is none other than the creator of the world. Look at the beginning of the book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, this reminds us very much of John chapter 1, where, where we read the word became flesh. But before we read the word became flesh, in chapter 1 we're told who that word is and was before he became flesh. The word who later became flesh was first in the beginning. He existed at and before the moment of creation. He was with God. He was God. John 1 says, he was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. Apart from him was not anything made that was made. And then, in the incarnation, the Word, or the Son, the creator of the world became part of his own creation. The creator Son became a man, a man of his own creation. Right, so if God the Father, through the Son, created all things... That includes even the human nature that the Son took to his person as his own humanity. The creator of all created for himself a complete human nature in order to live in creation as part of it. It's like the author of a story uh, writing himself into the plot as one of the characters. And ultimately he did this so that he could redeem all of creation through what he would accomplish in his created nature. Thus, the creator of all creation becomes the redeemer of all creation by becoming part of creation. In some of the greatest lines in the history of uh, Christian hymnody are meditations on this truth that the man Jesus is the creator of the world incarnate. As in, um, alas, and did my Savior bleed. We sing, Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. The next verse of chapter 1, verse 3, speaks further of the Son who became flesh. It says he's the radiance of God's glory and the possessor of God's nature. Look, look at verse 3. We read, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, so if you could imagine a perfect representation of every aspect of God's glory, then you would be imagining the Son of God. If you could picture a perfect shining forth of God's glory, shining in full strength, not dampened in any way, and no beam of glory accepted, then you would be picturing the Son of God because He is the radiance of the glory of God. And for eternity, God has been beholding and enjoying His own glory and the perfections of His own beauty because they're on display, shining forth as the Father beholds the Son, the radiance of His own glory and likewise, when we read that the Son is the exact imprint of the Father's nature, this means the Son, like the Father, shares in full in the divine nature. So He is God just as much as the Father is God. And since there's only one God, not two, 
or three, then it must be true that if the Son is fully God and the Father is fully God, the Son must be what we read here, the exact imprint of the Father's nature, sharing in full in the same single divine nature. So the Son is like God in every respect. And this is the one who became like us in every respect. In the second half of verse 3, we see the man Christ Jesus is the sustainer of the universe. The sustainer. Verse 3 again, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So not only have all created things come into being through the Son's agency, also all created things continue to be through the Son's agency. The one who became a man upholds the entire universe. So even while the Son of God was a human baby in a manger in Bethlehem, and could not even hold up his own tiny head through his human nature, at the very same moment, he was also holding up the entire universe in and through his divine nature. As God, he was granting ongoing existence and life by the word of his power to everything in the universe, even while... As a man, he was crying and screaming like a baby because he was a baby, uh, because he was hungry and couldn't do anything about it himself, or tired and didn't understand it, or perhaps crying because of whatever um, biological benefit comes to babies through just crying and screaming. I've I've heard this is one of the reasons babies cry. It's amazing. The sustainer of the universe himself became flesh. I think this means also the Son of God in his divine nature was upholding by the word of his power, even, paradoxically, himself in his human nature. The creator and sustainer of the universe, the subject of the incarnation, is also identified as the eternal son of the father. In verse 5 of chapter 1, the son of the father. Verse 5 reads, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So verse 5 here quotes Psalm 2 and also 2 Samuel 7. And these are um, reflections on the promises of the covenant God made with David. And we looked at those promises last week in week 1 of of this series on the incarnation. And so Psalm 2 here, used by uh, the author of the book of Hebrews, speaks of Christ becoming installed as or seated as the king promised to David who would rule forever in God's kingdom as God's son. And I think that's the primary sense in which uh, here he is said to be begotten today. Uh, That is, he was installed at, at a moment in time, enthroned at a moment in time as the promised human king that God promised from David. He was he was formally recognized and set up as the Davidic king. And that's the one that God said he would count as his own son. And so thus, uh, his enthronement was, was uh, in a sense, when he was begotten. He entered into a new experience of sonship as the incarnate one. But it is perfectly fitting for this king promised in the line of David to be called God's son... Because for eternity he has been the Son of God. Uh, The one who is the Son of God eternally was established in another sense as the Son of God in human history. When the eternal Son 
came to sit on the throne of David as a man. So the man who was begotten, so to say, as the throne of God in history, is the eternally begotten Son of God. And John 1 identifies him this way again, uh, explicitly. The Son in John 1 is called the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Eternally, He is Son from the Father, within the life of God. And this is the one who became like you. Uh, In the Nicene Creed, we hear how the church has confessed this one as the subject of the incarnation. So throughout her history, the, the church has said this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who, this one, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. God's only begotten Son is the who of the incarnation. Verses 6 and 7 say that He is the one worshipped and served by angels. Look at verse 6. And again, when He brings the firstborn, there's Son language again. When He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. So the subject of the incarnation is worthy of of worship from every angel in heaven. You know, when angels appear to men in the Bible, men are sometimes tempted to worship them because they are so great and glorious. No less of a godly man than the Apostle John, uh, whom I, I may dare to say was a godlier person than even you are. And the Apostle John was tempted to commit blatant idolatry when an angel appeared to him because of how great, he was overcome at how great the manifestation of this angel was. In Revelation 19.9, the Apostle John says, The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 10, then I, John, fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And then it happened again. Even after John has already been rebuked for this. Uh, When John sees an angel again in Revelation 22, he can't help but be so overwhelmed by its greatness and glory. Revelation 22, 8. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And the angel again says, get up, John. Verse 9, he said, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, I love to compare that to John's response when he saw a manifestation of the greatness and glory of the Son at the beginning of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1, 17, John says, When I saw the Son, I fell at His feet as though dead. So seeing an angel's glory made him tempted to think, I should fall down and worship this one. But seeing the Son's glory just about killed him. So apparently, right, seeing an angel can take your breath away in the sense of amazing you, but seeing the sun can take your breath away in the sense of ending your life. Now, there's a purpose to all that. Let's put our minds back on on Hebrews 1.6, where the Father says of the Son, let all God's angels worship Him. Okay. So, in our frailty and limitations, and infinitude, for us to see an angel 
could be so overwhelmingly great and glorious, we might be tempted to fall down and worship at his feet. And yet every angel and archangel in heaven bows down to worship at the feet of the Son of God because his greatness and glory outweighs all of them put together. I love to sing the hymn, Fairest Lord Jesus, and I love especially to loudly sing the line, Jesus shines brighter, Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. The gap in glory between the greatest angel of heaven and the Son of God is an infinite gap. You can't even compare the glory of the two. They're not on the same spectrum. One is, one is a creature. One is the creator. And if an archangel of heaven became like us, we would have good reason to cover our mouth in amazement and say, what an incredible condescension. But it is not an archangel who is taken of our same flesh and blood. The God whom all the angels worship has partaken of our flesh and blood. Verse 7 and 8 continue to highlight the greatness of the Son above and beyond all angels. Verse 7, of the angels, God says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Okay, so by contrast... We're about to read that the Son is not just a minister or a servant of God like the angels. The Son sits on the other side of that equation. The Son is God on the throne. Look at verse 7 again. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever So angels serve God before His throne as ministers, and the Son sits on the throne as God. And God didn't send one of those great and glorious ministering spirits around His throne to become like us. He sent the Son above them, the one who's worthy to share His own throne. In verse 8, what we just read, We see the who of the incarnation is the one enthroned as true God. Look at verse 8 again. Of the Son, He, God the Father, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Beyond your companions. So in just one word in verse 8, the Son is reaffirmed as the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Because in verse 8, the Son who became incarnate is called God. God sees His Son enthroned and calls Him God. And if God identifies someone as God then such a one is truly God. Now, verses 3 and 13 of this same chapter also teach us to see Jesus in this light because it talks about how He is seated at God's right hand. That means He's participating in God's sovereign rule over the cosmos. So this one who became incarnate is not only the creator of all and the sustainer of all, He is the ruler of all. And His throne is forever and ever, we read. And the truths of verse 10 through 12 speak similarly about Him. Look at verse 10. Again, speaking of the Son, we read, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. They, the heavens and earth, will perish, but You remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. 
Verse 8, the Son was called God by God the Father. Verse 10, the Son is called the Lord by the same. Verse 12, we read that He is the immutable one, the unchanging one. You are the same. He is the everlasting one. Your years have no end. And so this one who always has been and always will be, who made the heavens and will roll them up like a scroll and and they'll perish while he remains, this Lord took for himself a perishable human nature, a nature that was capable of wearing out like a garment. He took on a human nature that was capable of being changed. Now, of course, we should be careful to say that even when he took on a human nature that was capable of being changed and wearing out, that did not threaten his immutability or his unchangeability. It did not change him as the Lord in his, in his Godness. When the Son became like us in every respect, this did not change the Son in His deity in any respect. All right, so even after the incarnation, the Father can look at the Son and say, You are the same. You are the same. God cannot stop being God. God the Son did not stop being who He was and is and always will be. But while God the Son could not stop being God... He could start being man. And in fact, he did. Because he took to himself a complete human nature. So, inquiring about the who of the incarnation leads us to make an amazing confession. That the everlasting, immutable Lord became a man. All right, now we've seen how chapter 1 develops the subject of the incarnation. Let's look at chapter 2 to think more about what this one actually did in becoming incarnate. This is the what of the incarnation or the explanation of the incarnation. Hebrews 2, 14. You you should highlight... Uh, 2.14 and 2.17 in red and green. These are great Christmas verses. 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So the phrase flesh and blood in this verse refers to a complete human nature, not just a physical body. Uh, When this verse speaks of our sharing in flesh and blood, right, it refers to everything we have in common with each other as humans, our human natures. And the Son of God partook of these same things, of all of the same things. So everything that we share in common with each other as humans is something that we now share in common with the Son of God also, except sin, of course. The Son partook of the same things, it says. He is the same like us in our manhood, just as much as He is the same like God in His deity. The Son of God took on the exact imprint of our natures. And so the Son really can now identify us with us so closely that He considers us like brothers to Him and like children for Him. Look at verse 11 of Hebrews 2. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies, that's Jesus in context, and those who are sanctified, that's Jesus' people, all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, 
all the people the Father has given to the Son. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Okay, if you have any brothers, is their flesh and blood, their nature, like yours? Some of you may have called your brothers aliens when you were little, but you were joking, okay? It's the same flesh and blood. If you have any children, is their flesh and blood like yours? It's the very same. Christ partook of the same human nature we have. He did not become a kind of superman. He became the same kind of man all of us are. His human body and his human soul was just like yours. Now, some of you may be arrested a little bit by that last statement. A human soul? Did he just say a human soul? Well, okay, are you just a body? No. Humans are embodied souls or ensouled bodies. And Christ took on a complete human nature, a reasonable soul and body. And one false teaching that was uh, condemned as heresy, rightfully, by the early church was the teaching that the Son of God only took to His person a human body. That's called Apollinarianism. But if the Son only took to His person a human body, He would be more like God in a human costume than He would be God who would actually become man. If He took to His person only a human body, then He is not like us, really. He would not be like us in every respect. And if that's the case, he cannot identify with us or help us or save us or die as our true substitute or be our covenantal righteousness before God or represent us truly before God as our high priest. Now, the human soul of the incarnate son was not like yours morally because he had no sin. But his human soul was just like yours naturally, of the same kind, the same nature. True humanity. Likewise, his human body was just like yours, which is really good news. This is why your human body, if you belong to Christ, can one day become just like his, is now resurrected in glory. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. Some of you feel like my body is a lowly body this morning. I feel it. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. So we can and will one day have a glorious body like Christ's because Christ's glorious body is part of his glorified human nature that's like ours. If the flesh and blood of Christ, his human nature, is able to be raised and glorified like it is, then ours is too. Because in the incarnation, he partook of the same flesh and blood that we have. Let's consider the other great statement about the incarnation in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Really just the first part of it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Again, the full humanity of Jesus could not be made clearer than it is in this verse. He was made like his brothers in in every respect, according to everything, like his brethren in all things. Again, he is just as much of a human in his human nature as you are. There's nothing you have that qualifies you to be considered a, a human that he did not take to his person. Uh, These statements in Hebrews make it clear the Son of God did not just come appearing to be a man. He did not just seem to be a man. But that happened all the time in the Old Testament, didn't it? God would manifest Himself 
uh, in the resemblance of a man, resembling a man. But what happened in Bethlehem was different. This was not another manifestation of God in the resemblance of a man. This was God becoming an actual man, not merely in appearance, but in substance and in every respect. Isn't it wonderful how Hebrews 1 and 2 are put right together like this? I mean, if if we consider both chapters, we are left with nothing else to conclude other than the Son, after the Incarnation, is both fully God and fully man. We can't throw out Hebrews 1 or Hebrews 2. So, from the point of the Incarnation onward, the Son of God possesses Uh, uh, in His person, a complete human nature and the complete divine nature. But He is not, therefore, two persons, as if there is the human Christ on the one hand and the divine Christ on the other. No, there's just Christ. And this one Christ, this one Lord, has a human and divine nature, The, the latter being His from all eternity and the former being His from the time of the Incarnation. One person existing and living in and through and according to two natures. One person, two natures. Uh, We've already said that the Son's taking to Himself a human nature did not change or confuse His divine nature. We should also be careful to say that His previous possession of a divine nature does not confuse or change his human nature, again, such that it uh, was or became some kind of Superman nature instead of being one like ours. These two natures remain distinct, each true to form. But Christ, on the other hand, Christ having two distinct natures does not mean we can ever separate the two because one and the same divine person is is the acting agent or subject of both. So, in the person of the Son, the divine nature and a human nature, and I use those articles purposefully, so I'll, I'll say it again so you can pay attention to the articles. So, in the person of the Son, the divine nature and a human nature are indivisible and inseparable, even as each one continues to be unconfused with the other and unchanged by the other. Uh, This doctrine is called the hypostatic union, and that's from the Greek word for person, uh, hypostasis. So, the hypostatic union, the personal union, refers to the union of divine and human natures in the person of the Son of God. And this is the way Christians throughout church history have talked about Christ, who He is after the Incarnation and because of the Incarnation. And it's expressed beautifully and so clearly and so carefully in the creed that came out of the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. I I printed it on your handout so you can follow along. I'm going to read it in full. We then... Following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, truly man, consubstantial, so the same nature with, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, 
unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved. And concurring in one person, in one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Amen. Now, there's another clear explanation of the Son's humanity earlier in Hebrews 2. It's not as short and explicit as verse 14 and 17, but it is clear in its affirmation of the Son taking on humanity. Look at verse 6 of Hebrews 2. And here, Psalm 8 is quoted with reference to the Son. And Psalm 8 is a psalm celebrating uh, how God made man to be. Hebrews 2, 6, it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, though, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Now, there are a lot of really beautiful truths in these verses. But for now, I want to only talk about its affirmation of the incarnation. It says, the Son became man and like the sons of man, in that He became lower than the angels, at least for a little bit. If the Son of God had taken to His person an angelic nature that was like the greatest angel in heaven, even that would have been an infinite condescension of great humility. But he went even lower. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, like us, clay pots. The Son, about whom it was said, let all God's angels worship Him, became lower than those angels. So the one whom all God's angels worship became like those who are beneath the worshiping heavenly host. Why did he do this? Why did he stoop so low? Hebrews 2 gives us a lot to consider in answering that question. It's wonderful to see, and again, I plan to spend all of next week looking at how this section of Scripture teaches us about these purposes of the Incarnation. But this morning, I want to show you just one of the reasons for the Incarnation, given in Hebrews 2. And this purpose is a very general one. It's stated very simply and beautifully. Uh, He became incarnate to help us. The Son of God became lower than the angels to help us. Verse 16 For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, I connect this verse to the incarnation especially because of the first word in the next verse, one about the incarnation we've considered. Verse 17 begins with, therefore, therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. And the word therefore at the beginning of that affirmation of the Incarnation, means what came before it is is the ground for the Incarnation, or the reason for the Incarnation, or the purpose of the Incarnation. So, if I switched the order of the verses, but kept the logical connection the same, it would read, 
He had to be made like his brothers in every respect because it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So the Son of God did not become like angels in order to help fallen angels. And I assume that God maybe could have done that uh, since it was possible for Him to become like us and take to His person a complete human nature. But the Son of God did not become like angels in order to help fallen angels. The Son of God became a man to help fallen men. He became lower than angels because He wanted to help those who were lower than angels. Uh, The King James has this reasoning even more explicit in the way that it translates verse 16. The King James reads, For verily he took not on himself the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham. That is, every, every man who by God's grace trusts God like Abraham did. In the Bible, we read of no hope of salvation for fallen angels, for angels who sinned and rebelled against God following after the fallen angel Satan. There is no redemption. And what's the proof of that? Well, one proof is the Son of God did not take to Himself a complete angelic nature in order to help them. But in the Bible, we do read of a hope for fallen men. For men who have sinned and rebelled against God, also following the fallen angel Satan, for them there is hope of salvation. And what's the proof of that? Well, one proof is that the Son of God did take to His person a complete human nature in order to help those that He became like. So even as we speak, now, as we speak, the Son of God does not exist as an exalted angel seated at God's right hand, making intercession for fallen but redeemed angels. Rather, Jesus exists, possesses a complete human nature, and and so exists as an exalted man, seated at God's right hand, making intercession for sinful but redeemed men, for all of us who have come to God through Him. Jude, verse 6 Jude, verse 6, says that the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. But God did not keep sinful man in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment they deserve. Instead, as Isaiah prophesied, looking forward to the incarnation, he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why? Why us? Why not angels? We want to say with Psalm 8, we should. What is man that you were mindful of him like this? Or the son of man that you care for him? There is nothing about us that would commend us to God over and above angels. This is just Mercy, plain and simple, pure mercy, free mercy, immense mercy. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself in his great love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy, all, immense and free. So, I want to suggest that anytime you're tempted to doubt that God really doesn't care about you, 
really isn't mindful of you, if you're tempted to doubt that He really does desire to save you and help you, and that He really is able to do that, you should remind yourself of the incarnation. The Lord took flesh and blood just like yours because the kind intention of His will was not to show grace to angels, but to show grace to you. Even though fallen angels are not the ones helped by the incarnation, unfallen angels do join with us in looking at the incarnation and giving glory to God for being so gracious and so wise. Uh, God's eternal plan was to show all, including showing to His angels in heaven how gracious and wise He is by saving fallen men through the incarnation of the Son. Ephesians 2, 7 says, God saved us in Christ. Here's where the verse starts. So that in the coming ages for eternity, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. How? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 3.10. Ephesians 3.10 says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in sending the Son to become lower than angels... God has helped the offspring of Abraham. He's helped all those who trust in Him in mercy. And He has also won for Himself glory forever in heaven from saints and angels. And He's won glory for His Son the same. Surely, it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And so, so he was. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for uh, this precious treasure of a doctrine. And it's, it's more than a doctrine. It's the gospel, it is our salvation that your Son would become like us in every respect, to die in our place and to bring us to glory as sons. God, I pray that you would help us to understand these things um, more deeply. I pray that you would lead us into truth, uh, correct us, God by your mercy, if there's any way that we're thinking about the incarnation that's wrong, we know that we are not thinking about the incarnation in a way that is worthy of this great work of yours. So God, I I do pray again, like we prayed before this lesson, I pray that you would help us to think more worthily about what you have done. And not just so we would have right doctrine, but so that we would love you and uh, want to live serving you no matter the cost. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.